Welcome to the Film Situation Podcast. We'd like to give a warm welcome to cinematographer Luke Bryant on the Film Situation Podcast. Welcome, Luke. Thank you for having me. And I was actually, we'll get to The Last Kingdom for sure, but I just want to first ask, how did you first gravitate toward cinematography and a life of filmmaking? I come from, I've got a really creative family, so a lot of my family are musicians or the kind of creative aspect of things. And I guess as a kid, the thing that always excited me the most was film. And specifically about films, it was always the look. So I remember the first time I watched 2001, I'd have been like 10. And then I think the first time I watched Blade Runner, I was 10 or 11. And it just blew me away, especially Blade Runner, weirdly. I know it's, there are problems with the film in terms of it's a detective film without a huge amount of detecting. But I just think the power of the aesthetic in that film is so strong that it blows you away. And the first time I watched it, I was 10 years old. I got into the living room where we lived. The curtains were drawn, but there was early morning beams of sunlight coming through, hitting the dust. So I felt like the way I was watching it was reflected in what was going on screen. That's um, amazing, by the way. I it, love that. I, I remember it so clearly. Like I remember sitting in the living room, heavy curtains, beams of light coming through, and I'm there, and then I'm watching a film that's just got beams of light everywhere. So there was that kind of thing. And then, uh, and then I actually ended up going to the New York Film Academy, cut to 20 years later or whatever, New York Film Academy in New York, the offices in New York. Cool. And I think at the time... I think I knew I wanted to be a cinematographer. I was interested in doing directing as well. But I think being there and being in New York, it cemented for me the fact that what I love most about movies is the look, is the cinematography, which is not to say that as a cinematographer, you don't have an appreciation for narrative uh, and performance. You have to, otherwise you're dead on your feet. But the look specifically is what I'm most interested in. You know, it's funny. As a New Yorker, a native New Yorker, yeah, I'm always just, I never take for granted. I feel like I'm always looking at New York like I'm a tourist, even though I'm from here. I'm always filming stuff like, you know, yeah. like even on my phone of just filming. I film these little montage videos on my phone of just things that are just visually inspiring to me. And somebody would be like, this guy just get to New York City because I'm so just I, always I filming find, stuff. I find that interesting because when I was there, I had exactly the same experience as you. And I thought to myself, like, I wonder if, when you're, in, you're put in a position where you're outside of your own culture, where in effect you're the, you're the other culture. So you're like an outsider looking in, like a tourist. And I thought, I wonder if I'm so excited by New York because of that. I'm just outside of myself and I'm outside of my comfort zone. I'm in a different culture. But it sounds like you get it too and you're born and bred New York. So. I do. And maybe that's why I, I also got attracted to filmmaking is that just I get I get stimulated by visuals and yeah. the visual nature of things in general. And in New York, I think we have the benefit over here is there's always something new. There's always something that you haven't seen before. It's almost like no matter how many places you've been to, no matter how many restaurants you've tried, there's always something else. So there's always yeah. something I feel like, like maybe if you came from like a small town somewhere, I'm sure that's a generalization because even there, there might be a new type of plant growing or whatever. But I feel like in New York in particular, there's just so much visual stimulating information. Like even at the other day, I was on at a client's office on the 57th floor of a building. And I've seen the statue. I've, I've seen the Empire State Building countless times. But the point of view, this particular point of view, southbound, looking at the Empire State Building, and then all the way downtown, seeing the Statue of Liberty down in the background, it's rare to see that site from that angle and from that sort of perspective. And yeah, um, I can visualize it right now, even as you're talking about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was just filming it on my phone and uh, it was just visually appealing and it was pretty cool. But it's quite impressive that it's not become something passe and blase for you that you've not got tired of it, like how aesthetically stimulating it is. Now, I felt like when I lived in New York, I just found it, I lived in London, so after I came back, I lived in London 15 years. London is great, but I felt like it, it takes a lot of your energy, whereas I felt like living in New York, I got really stimulated and energized by being around that kind of energy. I also think New Yorkers, they're quite high energy, they're, they're quite in your face in a good way, like it's easy to strike up a conversation with somebody on the street, whereas in London, everybody is, don't talk to me, just leave me alone. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. it's a totally different kind of energy. Yeah. And I was just in Los Angeles. I was doing a shoot there. I was producing on a project there last week. I just came back and uh, that's visually interesting in a different way because you could be driving down the street and you just see these beautiful mountains or these valleys in the background and just palm trees. And yeah. 
the light is so interesting over there. So it's different places. Yeah, like you said, that's an interesting point. I think the light is more interesting in LA, but architecturally, and in terms of the energy, it's a bit less interesting than New York, I think. Yeah, it's definitely different. And I was trying to think about, I was giving this a deep dive because somebody was like, are they, it's like as New Yorkers, somebody was asking me about my trip to LA. They were like, maybe they like bringing a New Yorker onto the project because you get things done in a certain way. And I'm like, no, I'm like, it's not like they're lazy out there, but I think sometimes there's certain cultural things that are a little different. If you've called somebody in the phone and you have to follow up with somebody, there's sometimes a reluctance to call them again. Oh, I don't want to annoy that person or I don't want to bother them. And so it's not that the laziness is preventing that sort of follow-up where the New Yorker in me is, I think they need a get gentle nudge. I think they need a, a respectful, but gentle nudge to like get this done. And I think it's okay to call them right now. <laughs> yeah. You know, I kind of feel like that's also the American energy. Like yeah, American energy is way more on the front for a more entrepreneurial, more get stuff done. Like I've worked overseas, not in the States, but with say American producers. And you'll find the local crew will be maybe a little bit laid back. And the American producer, like, what's going on here, guys? Just to get it done. It's kind of more on, and it's like you say, it's not, it's not aggressive, it's more on the front foot. Yeah, it, it's all about the delivery. Like you could have somebody that delivers the message like aggressively nasty, or you could have somebody that's trying to accomplish the same thing and doing it respectfully, always trying to move the needle forward a little bit. Or That's how I look yeah. at it like. Yeah. So which part of England did you grow up in, Luke? So I grew up in an area called the West Midlands, which I feel like the West Midlands is famous for the birth being the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution and then heavy metal. Oh, um, nice. So that's, so I was like, West Mid- it's Birmingham, which is the second city, and I was to the west of that. Is that like where um, Black Sabbath is from or something? Or That's exactly where Black Sabbath is from. Yeah, Black Sabbath are from Birmingham. Um, cool. So I kind of grew up in that area. And then for the last, ooh, let me see, from about 2004 to 2019, I was living in East London, which is very cool, actually. I think London and New York have a lot of similarities, and it was Living in East London was very cool. But since then, just before all the pandemic or the craziness happened, I've been living in Brighton, which is on the south coast of the UK. So we've got the sea just outside. Everybody is that, very cool and very friendly. That's where the movie Quadrophenia is filmed in, right? It like, is. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good spot. It it's is. a good movie. And I think that the film that just came out recently, Empire of Light, I think they were looking at setting it here, but they ended up shooting Margate, which is another seaside town. So here we've... Uh, Brighton is just great. The people, you know, like, there's loads of... There's quite a few filmmakers that live around here as well. The kind of food, pubs, restaurant, bars, all that kind of stuff. And it's a small city, but it's kind of a breath of fresh air after having been stuck in London so long. So I, I've heard from a lot of people that back in the day, people used to make jokes about how the food in England wasn't so good. But now I feel like the reputation is a lot of people are saying that it's been elevated substantially. Have you heard that as well? Is that your experience? I, you know, it, this is really funny. Back in the 90s, an ex-girlfriend of mine, her sister worked for the British Tourist Board in New York. So we actually, we were, I remember we went out and stayed with them and we were talking about American and New Yorkers' perceptions of British food. And she was like, you will never convince Americans that they can eat well in the UK. This was like back in the 90s. So I do feel like things have come a fair distance from there. Um, and obviously we've been subjecting you to like Gordon Ramsay and all these kind of psychopathic chefs for like the last decade or so. So there's an element of, I think, that's funny. things come on quite a bit. Because when we were kids, like in the 80s, if you went to a pub or somewhere in the countryside, sometimes kids weren't even allowed in anyway. But the options for food were just, forget about it. So I think, yeah, the culture now is very much a foodie culture, I think. But it took a while. And also, we were, like in the UK, we were on, the country was rationed for seven or eight years after World War II. So that kind of sense of... I don't know, that slightly puritanical approach to food was embedded after World War II, I think. And it took us a while to get it out of our system. Yeah. And I always wonder how much of those things, even at the time of hearing such things, I've always wondered how much of it is just perception. Like I'm sure, you know, maybe tourists might not have known what places to go to that are good restaurants, but somebody from London probably knows what the good places are. Or is it actual? Do you feel like that yourself, that there is just a lot more variety of just good cuisine yeah i think things are definitely better now like even a, a town like brighton which is not that big a town there's an amazing kind of spread of different pubs and restaurants and food kind of and obviously london it's not tokyo i think like isn't tokyo the place with the the most mission starred restaurants in the world but but london's pretty damn good I've been, yeah. sorry just on that tip i've been watching tokyo vice i'm about halfway through the michael mann tv show 
And uh, man, that makes me want to go to Japan. They obviously shot the whole series there. And it's about an American journalist in Tokyo in the 1990s. But this, they're just out at restaurants every night, you know, all this kind of amazing food. Or oh, they're all smoking. They're literally there eating sushi and smoking at the same time. <laughs> I didn't know that Michael Mann, there was a Michael Mann show. I think that's pretty cool. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah he did. The, I think he directed the first episode and then produced or is that produced the rest. I'm and familiar it, with the premise, actually, because I read up on it. And I know it's based off a book that the journalist wrote, actually. And it's like a true story. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. I think his name is Jake Adelstein. I think somewhere in the Midwest, Missouri, or Wisconsin. Anyway, somewhere, uh, any American listeners will crucify me for that, but it's somewhere in the Midwest. And then he's in the big city. He's learned Japanese. He's obviously dealing with a lot of kind of racism because he's the only American guy in the whole office. It's very interesting, though. Like, really, yeah. That is pretty cool. Really I'm definitely going to check that out. And I've read some books on the topic and about the Yakuza and find it yeah. really interesting yeah totally and uh, actually a friend of mine my friend jonah schwartz who's also a dp and he's done oh, a, yeah he was lived, he on he was on this podcast did i see him yes he was yeah. on this podcast yeah. and he lived out in japan for a while and funny enough about oh. jo- jonah i back in high school i've knew, known jonah forever and ever since back in high school we used to take a saturday class at the school of visual arts for filmmaking in manhattan at sva yeah 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 and so, yeah, that's pretty cool. So you went to Knife, then you started shooting on shorts or like, how did you start? Exactly. So the main thing was I used to do, I shoot quite a lot of short films. I used to do quite a lot of commercials as well, or kind of smaller content stuff. And then I do the odd feature here and there. And then I didn't really start shooting TV until probably 2016, 2017. And it was more sitcom, slightly lower budget stuff. But I was always shooting films in the background. And then it just started picking up a couple of years ago for me. I've done, I did some second unit stuff on sex education and Black Mirror. And then I did Doctor Who season finale. And then I did a show called I Hate Susie, which I think is on HBO Max. So I then- on Black Mirror on your IMDb, you worked on the episode Hated in the Nation. And yes, that's the one. That's yeah, a- second, it was second unit. We shot a lot, actually. That's a great episode. Yeah, no, it was really good, actually. And I think it was a guy called Lucas Strabel who shoot main unit. Me and him got on great, actually. And the guy directing second unit was somebody I've known. In fact, I'd done a short film with him in 2009, and we stayed in touch. And he he's also just directed a show a couple of years ago now on Netflix called The Innocents. But we've kind of stayed in touch throughout the years. Oh, uh, that's a good show, too. People are talking about that. It's, it's a couple of years old now, um, but yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's a great show. i got to yeah. check that out. There's so many series. I'm almost, I'm like reluctant to watch a new series. <laughs> Where do you begin? You've got, That's the thing. I remember that old, there was like an old song in the 90s. Was it Neil Young? It was like 57 channels and nothing on. But yes. now you've got 50, 57 streamers and you're like, how do you pick what you're going to watch? I think it was a Bruce Springsteen song. And I remember the music video. Yeah, yeah. I just remember the music video for that song. And I think he shoots the TV and the whole thing is like an autopsy of the TV or it's like a That's crime right. scene yeah, yeah. of the TV. Uh, I used to watch now, a lot the of choices. It, I don't even know where you'd be. I mean, at the point where I, I want to go back and rewatch Mad Men, but then I'm also like, I've, so I've never seen The Wire. So I'm like, I've got to watch The Wire at some point. The Wire yeah. is incredible. You have to watch The Wire yeah. just from a storytelling perspective. It's just a game-changing yeah. show. And that's a show that I had tried to watch when it was on. And you, it's truly a show that you can't just jump into, like season three, episode four, or whatever. Like, I think I just... Yeah. would try to watch it when it was on HBO. And I'm like, what is this show? And why do people watch this? And then I remember it was helping a friend of mine move from his apartment to another apartment, a, a buddy of mine. He, and he had the box set of The Wire. And I'm like, you watch this shit? He's oh, man, this is a great show. He's a trust. He's borrow this. Just borrow it. And he's given yeah. a couple of episodes. And I watched. I think I went home, watched the first couple of episodes and. I remember taking off work like the next day because I was just binging the whole thing. So uh, when it first came out, I remember watching the first two or three episodes and then for some reason I just never went back to it. And all my friends were like, just get past episode three and then you're just, you're in. It's just your hooks. I'm not a binge. I'm not much of a binger. I know there's like a big binging culture in the world, but I'm not, I'm, I like, I don't know. I'll, I'll watch like maybe an episode every couple of days on a show. But I'm not much. I just don't have the time to binge on a show like that. I can't watch five hours of anything. Totally. I remember when Mad Men came out, I remember watching three or four episodes a day, but I was probably like really unemployed and I had nothing going on. So I could do yeah. that. Whereas now you're kind of like a bit busier. 
I know what you're saying. Back in those days, I, I could do such things as well. Yeah. So that's pre- that's pretty cool, man. I w- I watched your film that that you DP'd, The Last Kingdom, The Seven Kings. Is that do I have the title yeah, right? That's right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Last Kingdom, Seven Kings Must Die. So that was, I guess, that, so that only came out a month or so ago. And I guess fantastic, the, um, fantastic work, by the way. I really, I loved it. Thanks so much, man. Obviously, I when I look back at it, I just see the flaws and mistakes and things where I should have pushed harder to do it a certain way. But, but I think we did a great job, actually. And the whole idea was, so there's been five series of this show on Netflix. Yeah. Uh, and it's a successful show. And it, it was similar to Doc 2 in that when I joined the job, when you start looking into it, you're like, oh, th- these shows have huge fan bases. And so you have a, you go in there feeling responsibility to yourself to do yourself justice as an artist. And then after you learn the fan base of the show, you think, okay, I also have a responsibility to the people that love this show as well. And so one of the biggest changes, there'd been five series of The Last Kingdom. And then when we, we came to making it, the gear, the production team, we were going to do a two hour film. We wanted everything to be, to, I guess, really to raise the stakes in terms of the production value, the aesthetic and make it feel more like a feature film. So in the original series, it had been shot 16.9, I think 2K, a spherical. I think they shot an Alexa Mini. Stop me if I'm getting too technical. No, I like Mini. it. I love it. Yeah. Cool, cool. They shot Alexa Mini, I think, with Ultra Primes or something, something like that. So a spherical look. Um, and then when we came to do this, I had to make my case to the production company Carnival. But I felt that we could go anamorphic and we could go large format anamorphic. And I had to put together a whole bunch of references and put together basically a pitch document. But I felt the thing about anamorphic is, so we go from a 69 aspect ratio to a 239. You obviously have the bokeh or the bokeh, however you want to pronounce it, of the lens is beautiful. Anamorphic lenses tend to flare a bit more as well, which I think suits when you're in that kind of environment where you've got loads of candlelight and sunlight and everything is just really a mixture of those two sources. And you want as much texture and dust and that kind of stuff in the air as much as possible. So I felt that anamorphic lenses work really well for that because they flare so easily. And you also, with that wide, that wider canvas, one of the beautiful things about anamorphic as well is that because to achieve the, because basically the lenses, the field of view horizontally is double what it is vertically to achieve the same field of view, you have to be on a, a twice as tight lens, if that makes sense. So the depth of field is shallower than you would necessarily, you would normally see, well, it's not technically shallow, but it appears shallower than you would see it with a spherical lens. So when you're doing a close-up, you get beautifully out of focus background spaces, is what that means. Nice. So it took a bit of pitching, but I think the guys were, they were really happy with the results. And we still wanted to remain, remain true to the look of the show. So it's all very handheld. It feels like you're shooting a documentary in the Middle Ages. And uh, God, it's so, we were shooting on the Electra LF, which is a bigger camera than the Electra Mini. And then some of the lenses, like the, the 180mm Cook large form anamorphic, it's huge. It's the thing weighs a ton. So I have to take my hat off to the operators for being able to do handheld, which is a heavy piece of kit. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. I think that was pretty cool. And I think I think there were moments where because I was I now I didn't do a deep dive on the series, but in preparation for this discussion, I just went back and just popcorn style started watching some different episodes uh, like throughout the series and just checking it out and looking at and then then before watching the film that you did. And I do feel like there were some subtle differences that made it feel more cinematic like a feature film, like for instance, when that scene in the pub where even just where there was like a close up of one guy had, I think it was like the Thor's hammer, like pendant around his neck. And then the, somebody else had like the cross and there was nothing explained. It just showed that, but that kind of had some underlying conflict about what's going on in the show with the different types of Vikings. And I was like, wow, that's pretty, really good and cinematic. I just like that. I love moments yeah. like that where it conveys visual information without having to be too expository as, as far as the characters talking about that information right there and that. So I think you've just hit the nail on the head in terms of what, for me, is the main difference between feature work and TV work. And generally in TV, obviously this comes off The Last Kingdom was a TV show and this film came from a TV show. But generally I feel that with the TV shows, the way that you push the narrative forward is all through dialogue. So it's only characters talking telling you what's happened, but with really strong feature work and especially quite more old-fashioned films, the plot is put forward in a purely visual manner, like you were just saying. So the exposition is visual rather than it is dialogue-based. When I, I think we'll talk about it in a little bit, but I was just re-watching the opening credits of Blowout, and obviously he borrowed a lot from Hitchcock, but all the information in that first 10 or 15 minutes, it's all visual. 
It's just, it's fantastic the way it works. And it's not to say that, in fact, in Tarantino's book, Cinema Speculation, he talks about how De Palma doesn't like those kind of movies where there are people sat around talking a lot. And actually, Tarantino does that a lot. His films are still cinematic. But for me, I guess I prefer when you're seeing the visual information, the information being given visually, rather than being it expository in terms of the dialogue of the characters. And again, what you're saying about The Last Kingdom Day, you try and build up the details of the world visually, rather than saying this is happening, actually show it as much as you can. It's 100% accurate. And obviously there's always exceptions to the rule on either side, but, and these are generalizations, but they stem from the fact that motion pictures evolved from photography and television actually evolved from the radio. Okay, interesting. Yeah, very interesting. In fact, there's a reading article today about how podcasts has replaced what radio and TV does, which I guess is that kind of thing. That's interesting. You're totally right. And even if you go back and watch old films, I was watching, there's an old Richard Burton spy movie from the 60s called The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. And the blocking in that, in terms of what the camera does, it's so simple, but it's so effective. So the camera is always moving, but it's always moving motivated by, by what the actors are doing. And so you have these quite long extended takes. And it's, I mean, I know it's, it's part and parcel of every TV show you shoot, but coverage, you're watching a film like that and you don't see the coverage. Whereas I feel like nowadays, unfortunately, coverage has become a bit of a dirty word, especially when you shoot a TV show. You often know you're going to get a Y from here and then a close-up and then a close-up. That, that's just the way things work visually. But it, And do you think that's more pushed on television? Because like, obviously Hitchcock had a different approach to that sort of thing where he didn't shoot for coverage. He, this was, he shot for the edit or even Tarantino shoots for the edit. But I know there's other directors like David O. Russell that they shoot a lot of coverage and they build the scene in the edit room. And I don't think there's a right or wrong way, but from your experience working in television, because in feature films, like the director might have more latitude to do those things, but I've heard in television, the director is really not the boss. It's the creator of the show. Is that kind of your experience? Yeah, you're totally right. And you're also right about it. There's no right or wrong way. It's a very subjective thing. So whether you shoot with the edit in mind or whether you shoot tons of coverage and then you, you, you try and find the film in the edit, I don't really think there's a right or wrong way. When I was doing a film called The Lair with directed by Neil Marshall a couple of years ago, Neil did Dog Soldiers, The Descent. He did two episodes in Game of Thrones. In fact, yeah, we did Battle of... He did two great episodes in Game of Thrones. Anyway. So Neil is a great action director, knows his stuff. And we were up against it. We were shooting... It's a monster movie. So we're shooting an attack on an American airbase in Afghanistan at night. We've got a limited amount of time. So the way that he would do it, we do a lot of things in extended wanners, or you block all the action to one shot. So the camera's always moving. But rather than it being shot reverse shot, the camera's always moving. And it felt like we were shooting in a lot of wanners and being quite extended with the takes. Whereas... As soon as you get into a TV world, that the coverage always has to match. Not always, but it, you, know, you often find that when you're shooting, say, a two-hander in TV, you're going to get a wide, and then you're going to get a couple of sizes that generally match. So both actors will have that, and both actors will have that. Whereas, again, if you watch feature films, there's a great scene in Seven, actually, where Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt are in his office. He's the police chief. And somebody did an analysis of this on YouTube, actually, but it's absolutely spot on. Each time the camera cuts, it tells you something different about the relationship between the three characters. So the coverage doesn't always match because you actually you want to say different things about the camera width and the camera height, about how the characters relate to each other. And I tend to feel that in TV, you it's gone slightly out the window, so you tend to just match the coverage as much as much as possible. That that makes sense. And I know uh, working with my cinematographer Alex Gray, I know sometimes we always challenge each other. Alex said. To me at some point, he's like, Zeph, I'm so fucking sick of shooting over the shoulders. So can we think of other ways of shooting dialogue? So that I'm like, you know what? We should think of other ways to cover these scenes. And then I remember watching Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread. And I'm like, look at the way he approached the scene. And it's so interesting and like a bold choice of when there was a scene where God, how am I blanking on his name? He's the greatest actor of all time. The main actor of the uh, Daniel Day Lewis. Oh, Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> so yeah, there's a, Lewis. Yeah. Have you have you seen Phantom Thread? By the way, I have. Yeah, yeah. And I think Paul P.T. Hamilton shot that, didn't he? he yes, actually, he, he did. Was, he did. Yeah. yeah, but he 
there was a scene where Daniel Day his character is he's sitting down at a restaurant and some fans approach him and he's just sitting and they're like we love your dresses we hope to wear one one day i hope i hope that works out for you and just the way he co covered it was not in this traditional way it was just zeroed in on him as like a master shot if i'm remembering correctly but i know that it was in a unique sort of way and so i love that i love when people creatively and push the envelope you did speaking of master shots you did a master shot early on and there's a shot that i really loved in particular that i wanted to mention that had all the guys on horseback and i think you shot it in golden hour or something and it's like from far away and they're like up on a cliff and it just looked fantastic in oh, the last kingdom i feel like we had a few of those didn't we <laughs> um, I, I wanted to i almost i wish i screenshotted it to show you and i could send it to you later on but it looked really great look it was definitely in the first 15 minutes of the film Oh, okay. I wonder if that was when they're gearing up to battle with that other, the rival Vikings. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you know what? I think we shot that right at the end of the day. So there's a shot from in front of them and there's a silhouette shot and we were almost running out of line. Yeah, so it was so kind of silhouetted and it was from, it seemed like it was from pretty far away, but it's a beautiful shot. Yeah, so, so with a lot of the stuff on The Last Kingdom, the, me and the first AD, we spent a huge amount of time just working out the schedule because We'd awfully often want to be shooting all of the wide stuff in the last hour or two. So you get all the coverage done while the sun is up a bit. And then in the, in the last hour or so, as the sun is setting, then we'll try and look at shooting all the wide, which is kind of counterintuitive because you normally shoot the wide first. But I felt with this, we generally throughout the film, we got into the coverage or the close-up stuff first, and then we leave the wide till last because, you know, the sun will be coming a little lower. Um, and a couple of times we, we were right up against it, but we always got away with it because we'd always sat down and we'd go, okay, so we've got, 35 minutes off the sunset, it's going to be this dark, we're in this position, blah, 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 you work it all out. And it worked. I don't think we ever, uh, we, I don't think we missed a shot. And we shot, we shot so much stuff on that film. Like during the, the final battle sequence, we only had four cameras rolling and we had a drone. And then we also had a little unit that would occasionally go off. And we, we wanted to get that sense of the texture of the world around them. So we shot so much stuff of the trees blowing in the wind or the sun coming through the trees or all of this kind of textual stuff. And I think... We must have shot hours of it, and we ended up, I think there are four shots of it in the film. <laughs> so it's like 10 seconds of nature, and then the rest of the pals. So. That's amazing. I'm just going to refer to my notes, because there's a couple of yeah. other questions I wanted to ask. How many shooting days did you guys shoot? It's a good question. I think, I'd have to refer to my notes, I think it's about 35 days, and the battle sequence was, I think, about seven or eight days with one or two days of extra of second unit stuff. And our second unit, our fight sun coordinator, oh God, his name, that's not very really good. Absolutely incredible. He'd done all the fights on the Timothy Chalamet film, The King. So he had a lot of experience of, and also the previous series of The Last King, a lot of experience of this kind of stuff. Um, nice. So it's a pretty, pretty grueling shoot. And in, we shot in Hungary and they do 10 hour continuous days there. So you're on set at 7 a.m. You know, you're wrapped at 5 p.m. It's a continuous day, so no breaks. And then during the battle sequence, me, the director, producer, first AD, we generally do another three or four hours worth of meetings just to prep for the next day as well. So it kind Wait, of when you say continuous day, people just eat French style. Like whenever there's, they have a few minutes, they could exactly yeah, grab food. French style. yeah, exactly yeah. So there's yeah. no no lunch break. You just do ten hours in a row, which I guess for anyone else you can find a break, but for me and the director, you're just running around, you just forget to eat. But it was good. I think everybody's really happy. We had a great colorist who he'd been the colorist on the previous series. And so I think just to your point about being cinematic, what we, the LUT that we were using in camera, I generally just tend to use one LUT because I think anything else overcomplicates. So we had one LUT that was based quite strongly on the previous series, the, the show LUT that they had. And then when we came to the grade, which we did at the end of last year in London, I just felt that we'd raised the black level so much that it was starting to gray out. You were starting to lose some of the inkiness there. So we slightly crushed the blacks down. We went with slightly more contrast than they'd used previously on the uh, on the TV show. And I think that helps just give it a little bit more bite, a little bit more snap. And it almost feels like the image is slightly sharper. Yeah, um, I like the skin tone. The skin tones look great. So Yeah, they do that. And again, we, the look worked so well with that. And again, when you're dealing with something that is this period specific and it's set like the eight or nine hundreds, you're generally dealing with candlelight or daylight or candlelight, firelight or daylight. And so we looked at the way that that kind of the warmer tones and then the colder tones work on the skin. And I think it worked pretty well, actually. 
And then we also, you know, we, the look that we had as well in terms of filtration and the ratios on the face, we build a narrative art for the film. So the look of the film at the beginning is quite different to the look of the film at the end. So, for example, by the time we came to the battle sequences, I'd been using the Tiffin Black Satin filters, fairly heavy diffusion throughout the film for the drama stuff. And then by the time we came to the battle sequences, we removed the Black Satin filters. So you've got no filtration in at all for the battle sequence. And then I also shot with 144 degree shutter. Although sometimes it looks, I think it looks like it's slightly higher shutter angle than that. Uh, this is like a 180. Exactly, yeah. So it'd be like 180, 172.8. And some of the stuff we also shot at 50 frames, which then ramped back to normal speed, which is why it looks a bit more shuttery than 144 degree shutter. But the reason we did that is we just wanted, with 144 degree shutter, no filtration, the image just has a little bit more bite than everything else we've shot. You don't really perceive it at 144 degrees. It's not like watching Saving Private Ryan where you can see that shutter effect. And it just gives everything, all the texture hangs in the air a bit more. You get a bit more. Um, in fact, it was the first time we saw that was Shane Herbert. He did that work in Terminator Salvation, weirdly. Oh, yeah. It's great. And it's actually, yeah. It's, a, yeah, it's a good looking film. And that you see those kind of explosions or that you can see all the particular matter hanging in the air. And so we borrowed a bit of that for the final battle sequence. Yeah, I got to mention my DP, Alex Gray, who learned a lot about cinematography through Shane Hurlbut from doing his academies and things. His online tutorials are great. And also the fact that he could go from like Terminator Salvation. I feel like he sh- there was a, a film that he shot, which is a, like a about an American Navy SEAL team called to Act of Valor or something like that. But the whole thing he shot with 5Ds and he kind of mount the 5D on the shoulder and do all this kind of stuff. So that kind of willingness to embrace new technology as well is is great, I think. You've got to keep learning. I want to ask this, shifting gears a little bit. What is your – do you have a philosophy about how shadows appear? This is more of a general question about cinematography. Is there a rule of thought? Do you allow shadows if they're not a distraction? Because I know sometimes I'm on set with Alex. Like, we have to kill – those shadows, but sometimes it could be subjective on should we live with those shadows or not live with those shadows? Yeah. You know what I mean? And then I was showing Alex something from A Clockwork Orange. I'm like, look at this scene that Stanley Kubrick did on A Clockwork Orange where there's these crazy looking shadows from the characters and they're like in the main character's building and in his lobby. And then there's like these like crazy looking shadows on the wall. I'm like, Alex, if me and you were on set, like for sure, you'd want to be like, you'd say we have to kill those shadows. But yeah, so it's like, so in what instances, do you have a philosophy about that? Or I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I do. And I feel like there's two parts to the answer to the question. So the first one where you're talking about, I guess, the way, like the way that general shadows fall on the set. So for example, uh, or even on a character's face, like for example, like no shadow, particularly strong no shadow, things like that. Like I cannot stand that. So hard light on the face is just something yeah. I never do if I can Alex help it. Hate, Alex hates that too. That's one of his biggest pet peeves. So, so you also, that, and that's understandable. And, if something feels like a mistake, that, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. But the flip side of that coin is that I'm always looking for drama, especially in the face. So I tend to light, the light my lighting ratios on faces tend to be quite high. So I always try and put one side of the face into shadow. Like a negative uh, fill sort of situation? Exactly, yeah. So I try and do that as much as possible. But the fill light, I will always have on the key side. So the fill basically wraps around from the key side. So rather than having the key light there and the fill light there, I'd kind of put the fill light there. So it wraps around from the key side. And so even though I was just, I've just been shooting a comedy for Disney called Extraordinary. I think the first series has already come out on Hulu in the States. And there's a, there's a fair degree of craft which we're taking from series one. And so I'm trying to bring into, even though it's a comedy, even in the faces, there's still one side is lit and one side falls off into shadow. You obviously can't do that with every single shot, but you want, as I find, you want as much shadow as you feel you can get away with for the genre on the face, because that way you're introducing a bit of drama into the face and make, making, because most of the storytelling takes place in close-ups and you want the faces to have a degree of mystery and be slightly beguiling visually as well. So I'm always looking to find that kind of ratio across the face. I mean, that for me, it starts with Caravaggio and the chiaroscuro thing where you have light and then pitch black, which I've occasionally done when you're doing, say, a thriller or a drama, something like that. And then when you're moving into comedy, you have to slightly modulate that. So you have a little bit more light across the face. But it's funny because when I was initially thinking about how to answer your question, I was thinking, 
maybe I'd like to change my style depending on what script you're shooting or what the genre is. But actually, there are certain things that I guess I carry through show to show. Yeah. No, but it actually is interesting to hear your perspective on it because some of it is subjective. But I guess yeah, it's totally there, there's a way yeah. to categorize this feels like a mistake or this feels distracting versus there's a degree of this could be stylistic and we're leaving that in there. Yeah, and it's a very, it's such a subjective thing. I mean, I, and I really, I really don't think there's a right, there's, a, there's my way of doing things, but it's not a right or a wrong way. I remember watching, watching The Hateful Eight with my mum and they're all mostly in that big shack or whatever it is for most of the film. Yeah. And it's one of the characters walking through. I think I'm pretty sure it's shot by Robert Richardson. So he likes those pop lights, kind of pools of light that kind of glow as you walk through them. And one of the characters walking through the classic Robert Richardson pool of light. And my mum's going, why are there pools of light everywhere? I don't get it. So for her, and she's obviously, she doesn't work in the film industry. She's not kind of film literate, as it were. But for her, she found those pools of light distracting, which I thought was quite interesting because there's also comes a point where you want to make your lighting. It's tricky, isn't it? Roger Deacon's always talked about this, that he never wants lighting to be noticed. I think that's kind of slightly easy for him to say because his lighting is incredible and you always notice his lighting. But there is a, a, perceptive, a degree of perceptibility where you want it to be not noticed too much. Otherwise, you, maybe you're taking the audience out of their seat. So I know what you're saying. It's finding that balance. And that's something I think about yeah. a lot because I've been on a lot of sets where sometimes we're spending time like figuring out what would be the exact logic of the source of light in that room versus, hey, this looks really good. And I know for a fact that the audience, most of the audience, your mom seems to be pretty keen on the lighting situation, <laughs> but a lot of the audience, if something is pretty good and well lit, they're not gonna question of, would that light actually be coming in from that angle? And if, would the street light from outside that window literally be hitting that room the same way it's hitting the other side. The audience isn't really thinking about that. Other cinematographers might be thinking about that. So sometimes I wonder, I'm like, hey, are you doing this to impress other cinematographers or are you doing this to delight the audience? So I feel like there's yeah. a balance. <laughs> yeah, no, you're totally right. And I think slightly earlier on in my career, and I still do it now, you always start out with what are the motivations for light within the space? So that becomes your building block. But then I found, like, say, even on Extraordinary, the show that I was just doing for Disney, actually, by the time you come into a close-up, because so much of the storytelling takes place in the close-ups, by the time you get to a close-up, you kind of like the close-up as nicely as you like and not worry too much about the motivation for it. That makes Whereas, perfect say, sense, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, say, on The Last Kingdom, the sources were always windows or fires or candles. And then after, after The Last Kingdom last year, I did a show called, probably you remember The Full Monty, the film from 25 years ago. Yeah. So there's a TV show sequel coming out. It's coming out in the next month or so. And so I went from The Last Kingdom to The Full Monty. And The Full Monty, the director I worked with on that, she was fantastic, actually. Catherine, Catherine Moore said she just directed Lockwood and Co. For, uh, for Netflix. But her style was totally handheld. And she wants to be able to see 360 in the space. So actually, you need to fill the space with light, make it feel as naturalistic as, pro as possible. And then you just go around. So the camera was, I've never shot so much handheld in my life, actually. Camera's always moving. And I think she even said herself that she's aware that the way she likes to block things is detrimental to the lighting because you can't set everything up perfectly. But the edit and her way, the performances, they have so much energy. So for me, it was really interesting going from The Last Kingdom, which was fairly crafted, to The Full Monty, which feels very naturalistic, actually. And then back to something like Extraordinary, where every close-up feels quite crafted. And I think it's quite important to be aesthetic agnostic if that makes sense so you're not really bringing in a kind of a set of preconceived beliefs and notions about how you're going to do something because the genre and the script will always change I, I think that i think that's great i think that i completely agree and i think that's also a testament to your skills as as a really great cinematographer because thanks man there's a lot of people that like to stick to the same things or they get really adamant about, but it, it seems like you're always trying to push yourself to grow. And I could see that you're always, you're thinking about this on an extremely deep level and you're also a cinephile like me. So you're always watching different things. And it's, and again, it's not to say that one approach is right and one is wrong. If you look at, say, compare Roger Deakins and Greg Fraser, who are both, obviously they're both incredible cinematographers. What's really interesting is I feel like when I watch a Roger Deakins film, 
the quality of the light across the face, some of the ratios, I feel like you get a sense of what his work is like. Whereas when you watch Greg Fraser's work, Greg seems to change his toolbox every film. So if you look at Fox Catcher, that was shot on 35mm 185. And then if you watch Snow White and the Huntsman, I think that was shot anamorphic 35mm. And he seems to vary up his style quite a lot, going from spherical to anamorphic. Um, and even the lighting styles as well, like using, he went from Lion, which is quite a small level of film, then doing Rogue One, like total change. And I quite like that. It's really tough because you have to be learning things anew and you have to be continually working out of your comfort zone, I think. But again, but both styles are brilliant. I mean, I love Roger Deakins' work and I love Greg Fraser's work, but quite different, I think. Yeah, I see what you're saying, for sure. And on The Last Kingdom, there was so much outdoor cinematography that you were doing. Like a lot of, was that kind of, was that challenging? Because shooting it, it in a studio, really that, it's shooting in a studio, it's obviously a more controlled setting. You don't like the... You don't have to worry about the weather and the changing sunlight outside, but shooting outdoors, that to me is really, you have to know what you're doing. And you know what? It's funny because it sounds ridiculous, but when people say to me, what was the biggest challenge on the last kingdom? It was dealing with some of the weather and the outdoor light conditions, and specifically in that final battle sequence. So we were shooting about an hour outside of Budapest in Hungary, middle of winter. So it's pretty cold. It's when we were shooting that battle sequence, we'd get there at seven in the morning and it was like minus five, minus six degrees centigrade. So what is that? That would be 20s Fahrenheit. So it's, it's cold. Yeah, very cold. Um, below freezing. Exactly. So it's all below freezing. But then one day in particular, we had wind, rain, snow, sleet and sun all within three hours. So you're trying to maintain some kind of lighting continuity. And add to that the fact that it's fairly windy. So we couldn't get up huge fly swatters and all that kind of stuff. It's quite inaccessible. Where we shot that back was the whole point of it is in a valley because it's that's important narratively. So in terms of getting machines in there or anything like that, it's really tough. So when you're watching that final battle sequence, just out shot in every single shot, there's like a 20 by 20 silk and a team of men holding on to it as it's about to blow over, trying to soften the light. And it was a re really frustrating actually because we, Oh, we had a few days where you turned up to set and it was drizzly, it was overcast and it was muddy underfoot. And that was perfect. I was like, oh my God, these perfect conditions. But we only had that for a couple of days. And so there's a couple of shots throughout the film where we've got that weather, where it looks, yes, it looks like the Middle Ages. It looks like 800 AD. But then the rest of it, we're trying to fight the sun. And to fight that sun became, that was the biggest nightmare. We, I think we just about get away with it. But you work in film, like from your point of view, you'd be watching that final battle sequence again. Okay, oh, the sun's popped out, the sun's gone in. But we yeah. did what we can. But, uh, but because I work in film, I also would understand why. <laughs> I understand that it's, it's only, only a certain amount of hours in the day and it's just, it yeah. becomes impossible. <laughs> it, it really, yeah, exactly, it really does. And I've got to say as well, so the gaffer, Joel, he worked on the previous series and he was just great. Every, everything was always ready, as you'd expect, but he was just totally unflappable. And just got on with everything, had great ideas, was lovely. It was a really nice crew. I've done, it was my third film in Hungary, actually. And a Hungarian crew are just great. And they're awesome. really top notch. Yeah. It's really cool. It's funny. I was on a, like that set in LA and a really good DP. And I liked working with him. And I was producing on that project. But at some point, and he jokes around, he, we, he had a really good sense of humor. And at some point, the director had asked him, like, hey, can we get this shot this way? And he was like any eight-year-old with iMovie could key that shot. So don't worry about it. We got it. But you were dealing with <laughs> the complete, and he's done all kinds of projects and things. And he was yeah. totally kidding around. But, but you were dealing with the exact opposite of a situation on, on that film, it seems like. It, you know, it was, it was really tricky, actually. But I think we did a great job. And again, all credit to you the did. It, it looks fantastic. It's really beautiful. Thanks, man. And I, I think the colorist, Jatin Patel, he did a great job as well. And he'd worked on the show previously. And he was really receptive to new ideas, actually, because we started and we went in one direction for about a day and a half. And then I was like, it's just not quite working. When you start to see things on a run, on a flow. And so we, we went back and we revisited everything we'd done up to that point. No, and, the uh, color, I have a really a lot of strong opinions about color grading. And I don't like when it's not done the right. And it came out great. I don't like when it's cool. Thank you. overly stylistic. And it didn't go into that territory. You know what I'm talking about? Like sometimes you'll see a color grade and it's stylistic to a point where it's just distracting. And it wasn't like that at all. Yeah, it's really tricky, isn't it, as well? And it's totally determined by 
the script and the genre. The colour palette for this film is very muted. You don't really see the colour red. And again, the production design is incredible. Dominic Hyman, who designed the production, he's just, I thought his work was incredible. Whereas Extraordinary, the show that I've just done, we've got a huge amount of kind of neon colours and it's very, every single day we seem to see a scene where we have a huge amount of colour in it. But it's a kind of a modern sitcom set in East London. It's fairly urban. So I think you get away with that. In a way that if you're watching Euphoria, Euphoria, there's a hell of a lot going on colour-wise in Euphoria, but I think you get away with it. Yeah. All right, great. So what, Luke, what are you working on next? What's, I guess, what's next on the agenda? What could people expect to see? You mentioned the sequel to The Full Money. So yeah, is that... so, so that's coming out in the next month or so. That's on Disney and Hulu. I think it's, I guess it'd be Hulu in the States. And then what else have I got coming out? And then, yeah, Extraordinary Series 2, that'll be out in Hulu. I think it's, we've got a fair bit of post to do because we've only just finished. So it's either the end of this year or start of next year. So at the moment, I'm just taking a little bit of time off catching up on the rest of my life really excellent and where could people follow along with you as far as oh, are you on social uh, media do you have a website yes yeah, so the website which is super out of date actually but the website is lukebryant.co.uk or i'm on instagram i think i'm just luke bryant dop on instagram nice i'm gonna follow you on instagram i will follow you back because i've enjoyed nice. this chat i'm glad that you're not one of these people that's too cool for school to follow me back <laughs> I mean, especially we just spent like an hour talking that would be the height of rudeness wouldn't it yeah be not you'd, cool. be you'd be surprised <laughs> really oh, i don't know people have this mentality they want to keep their how many people they're following so low because that's i think that's yeah, i don't know I think it's, it's, it assigns value to their social media bullshit. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So now we're going to get to the second portion of the podcast where we discuss with every guest two movie scenes that are yeah. some of their favorite movie scenes. Not their absolute favorite movie scenes necessarily, but two of their favorite movie scenes. And Luke mentioned the movie The Driver by Walter Hill. Now, full disclosure, I haven't had the chance to see that movie, but I certainly will. It's it's at the top of my list right now. And I love Walter Hill. love the movie, The War Warriors. And yeah. And yeah. So tell us a little bit about the, give us a little bit of a context about what the film is about and then what the scene is about and why you like the scene. So when you, I, got, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but when I got the email through from you saying, think of a scene, my mind went totally blank and it could have been anything, but I happened to be watching the car chase in the new, the Batman film. So I thought, oh, hang on, what? I just talked about my favorite car chase ever. It's the finale of the driver. So you basically, you've got Ryan O'Neill driving a pickup truck, chasing a couple of guys who are driving like a guess, like a Trans Am, a silver Trans Am, like 1978 or whatever it is, Trans Am. And I still think to this day, it's one of the greatest car chases ever made. So the film itself is very sparse. Like even in the credits, you've just got Ryan O'Neill's character is just called the driver. So Walt Hill is looking at updating or emulating some of the, the existential cool of films like Le Samurai from the 60s. So the kind of French New Wave gangster films, which in themselves were a riff on the earlier American gangster films. Walter Hill is kind of updating Pierre Melville and those kind of guys. So there's kind of a, a moody, silent, existential vibe to, to the proceedings. But what he does, which I just think is absolutely incredible, is it's how kinetic that final car chase is. The editing in it is absolutely incredible. And one of the reasons it's so successful is because you, the cause and effect in the way that it's edited. So you will see Carnegie hits the car, then you'll see a hand hit the gear stick and a foot hit the pedal, and then you immediately see the reaction of that. And it's just completely connected. And a couple of years ago, I was shooting a thriller, like an eight-part TV show in the Middle East, a company called NBC. It's called Ratat. It's all about a 1980s gangster, kind of real-life tale. And we had a bunch of car chases in it. And so we went back and looked at all these car chases from the 70s. And one of the things I love so much about the driver is it predates, there is some car-to-car -car stuff as they're going through the streets, but it predates Russian arms, Ukraine, whatever, whatever you want to call the new, like nowadays we use ultimate arms or Russian arms or whatever to shoot car chases, which are great and they're, they're fast used, but they're all stabilized. Whereas when you look at the driver, all the car-mounted cameras, you feel the shake. It feels so kinetic that when they go over a pothole, you feel the camera shake and bounce around. So when I was thinking this thriller a couple of years ago, we didn't use vibrating isolators on any of the camera mount, sorry, car mounted cameras. We try to get as much shake in there as possible. And even the car-to-car -car stuff, we did a little bit of stuff in Russian Arm when I shot, but we try and keep it as rigid as possible 
So you're not taking out all of that kind of sense of visceral energy that you have. And, uh, and also another thing about the drive of the car chase is there's no do- there's no audio. There's, sorry, there's no music score. There's just the sound of the engine. And so when you listen to that, it just the whole thing just jumps off the screen at you. And I know there will be people that will say the car chasing bullet is better, but I think this is better. I got to say, I think it's the greatest car chase ever. It's so kinetic. I love the car chase and the French connection. That's one of my favorite underneath the elevated train. Totally. So this has got a really similar intensity and you kind of feel like you're in the cars with them and you haven't sensed the world around you. Um, although I've seen some of the behind the scenes stuff on that French Connection car chase and they were literally just driving around the streets of New York trying not to kill people. It was that is totally so insane. insane. That is insane. Yeah. Okay. So now, but good choice. Again, I love Walter Hill. So I got to see that movie. I, I loved his film, Geronimo. I loved Last Man Great Standing. Film. Obviously, The Warriors. Yeah. That's in yeah. New York. That's a Southern, cult classic. Southern Comfort. Southern Comfort's a great film as well. I got to watch that one as well. I haven't oh, seen it. Watch that. And then uh, The Long Ride is a great weapon by him as well. Okay. Nice. Nice. Actually, shout out to a previous guest on the podcast, Sochi Blymeyer, who has worked on a number of Walter Hill movies as the AD, cool. as the first AD. And she she also worked on Terminator 2 as an AD early on in her career. And wow. she knows Walter Hill. It would be so cool to have him on the podcast. Hey, great. Yeah, he's great. And okay, so now we're going to talk about the other film, which is a, a film I'm definitely f- really familiar with and really love. So I was happy you mentioned it, which is Blowout. Brian De Palma's blowout with John Travolta. And we were talking about cinema speculation before Quentin Tarantino's book. But I first discovered blowout, I think, back in the day. Not like maybe like when I was in college, I should say, back in the day, but not like at around the time when it came out. You know, it was I think I was it might have come out before I was born. But uh, but blowout, it was an incredible film and Tarantino at some point referenced that it was one of his favorite films. So I think that's how I first discovered it watching this interview with Quentin Tarantino that he said it was just like this film that he really loved and it prompted me to go out and watch it and rent it at the time on DVD and love that film super cinematic and so the premise of the film is actually about a sound designer and he's recording some sounds he's out on the field doing some foley work essentially, and then just recording some ambient sounds, rather. And then there's a car that comes careening off of a cliff and goes into the water, and he saves this girl. It just leads into, like, a whole chain of events. And I love how it ties somebody that's actually working in the movie industry and specifically on sound, which I love sound design, and, and it's just a really cinematic film. So tell me... Tell us why you chose that scene. I think one of the, the most impressive things about the film is that it's so visual. It's about, like you said, it's about a sound designer. But the film, everything that you need to know about that film is communicated visually. And there is so much going on in the frame. And like you, I came across the film when I was younger. And it was this slightly mythological film for me because I knew I loved Brian De Palma's work when I was younger. And I hadn't been able to find it on VHS or anything anywhere. And then one night it was on TV late at night. And I'm, uh, I was probably 13, 14, something like that, maybe 15 even. And I can remember, the, I can even just remember seeing the credits. It just totally blew my mind, the level of control and sophistication. How everything just felt, every single aspect of the film felt totally synced up with his vision. And what's so impressive about the first 10 or 15 minutes is you kind of have this fake movie within a movie, which states that it would almost work quite well in one of those slashes from the late 70s, early 80s. But it's stated in a way that it's all quite heightened. So when the punchline comes and the woman that's about to be killed is screaming and the scream is no good, which is what motivates him to go out, you know, that it comes as a surprise, but not a total surprise. So you've got that kind of film within a film. And then you the credits kind of start. Well, and then there's a little interstitial bit where he talks to his boss, which kind of gives you the setup for the character, which kind of gives you the punchline to the very first scene that happened. And it also shows you the working relationship they've had, the kind of the values of John Travolta's character, and it also gives you his motivation for what he's about to go out and do. So, you know, that, the opening scene, the little scene in the sound recording booth or whatever it is, and then he kind of he heads out to start going recording all of these things. Oh, no, sorry. No, he doesn't. Then he goes, 
Then it's the credit, which involves a use of split screen. So you've got all this political information happening on the right hand side of the screen, where there's a news report that's basically a close up version of the TV telling you about this, the senator and his run for president and what's going on. So you have, you see this political dimension to the film, which makes this, you know, spoiler alert, which makes this fascinating. It sets the ground for that. And then on the left hand side of the scene, John Travolta at work. So you see him saying, or you see him in his world. And the first shot of that scene, I think, is it's a close detail that then Dolly's back, goes to everything, tracks back out. And it lands on a wide and there's a beautiful kind of dividing line down the middle of the wide and then it goes into split screen. So the use of the split screen coming off a wide that has a natural delineation in it. It's all these things. It sounds really obvious when you talk about it, but it's all there. And then so you go through that and then the credits. And then over the credits, you have the screen that comes to be the screen for the rest of the film. That's actually there. And I only noticed for the first time the other day that when Nancy Allen's name comes up on screen, and it's a needle of the, of the audio needle doing like that as the sound's happening. As she starts screaming on the soundtrack, her name gets revealed. So you've got these little flash forwards to all these things that are going to happen. So the whole thing yeah. is just incredibly well conceived and completely visual. It's um, brilliant. And then yeah. you get, it's just incredible. And then you get this short scene of him out recording all the sounds that he's been told to go and get new library sounds for. And it's the way it's shot is so interesting because in certain shots, you can see they've lit up this bridge in this whole area. Then in certain other shots, it's really hard to tell what's going on. So you have this kind of the relationship in terms of where you are. It's interesting because sometimes the darkness at the edge of the frame, you lose track of where you are. But then you see a close-up of the shotgun mic panning around like this and doing that as John Travolta is listening for certain sound effects. And it feels to me, and I feel like I've read this somewhere, but it feels to me like it, that's almost like Brian De Palma with his kind of conductor's baton and just conducting your attention and telling you exactly where he wants you to be focusing or looking. And there's even, again, there's a visual cue which comes back to one of the main antagonist characters as well. That comes up and it's just completely passed over. And then later on, you come back to it. So you have all this completely visual information that gives you a sense. And I remember just seeing that as, well, as when I was 14, 50. And I was like, that's movie making. That's what I want to do. It just got me so excited. And there's one other scene later on that I just want to mention as well, which is when he, he goes back to his sound lab or whatever it is. And he goes in and all of his sound recordings have been wiped, all of his tapes. The camera's in the middle of the room and it just starts doing this 360, just going round and round and round. Camera's yes. going round and round. And it's totally expressionistic filmmaking because what the camera's doing, as John Travolta runs in and out of shot, and gets more and more hectic as his mind state gets worse. It completely shows you what he's going through emotionally in a visual way. Uh, it's amazing. It's I love that scene. So I'm glad you mentioned that one as well. And the production design is so on point throughout the film. And it's just great. And it's edited. It's edited by Paul Hirsch, who edited Empire Strikes Back. I think, did he do Star Wars? I feel like he won an article for Star Wars. Mission Impossible, Perry of Day are Paul Hirsch. You should, in fact, read his autobiography. It's a great book, actually. But he's, I'll, I'll um, definitely read that. Yeah. It's I'll really interesting. It. And even in that earlier scene when John Travolta's in the water, uh, after the car has gone into the water, he's trying to rescue the Nancy Allen character. It's edited in a really interesting way. Like he picks up a rock, and each time he goes to smash the window, it's only three or four times, but each time Paul Hirsch cuts to another angle. So as you never see the impact, on the same shot that the action has started. And it sounds really simple, but it just works really well. And it's a new angle each time. So picks up the stone, moves together the stone, and the impact, they cut around to another angle. So it's just, you've got this continually developing visual sense. And I just remember the first time I saw it, it was like, that's movies. <laughs> Amazing. And I got to say, Luke, this was one of the greatest film assessments on this portion of the podcast. So I appreciate this so much. That's very kind of you. It's, it's, yeah. it's, I've read a lot of other stuff, right? It's other people's opinions as well. And I'm I just, love the film so much. So I was so happy when I saw that. I was like, okay, I know I'm going to get along with Luke. As soon as I saw <laughs> Daria had sent me the choices that you made. <laughs> cool, cool. So th thank you for being on the podcast, man. I really enjoyed this conversation. Man, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you got up super early and you're like five hours behind. So God knows what time it is there. So thank no, you so it's much. Good. It, it, yeah, it's good. It's a good way to start the day. So uh, Great. I look forward to checking out your the rest your other works by you and wish you continued success. And th thanks again, Luke. All the best. Thanks a lot, mate. Take care. 
Thank you for listening to the Film Situation podcast hosted by Zef Kota. Today's guest was cinematographer Luke Bryant.